0: Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belli Project. This week, we'll be covering the war at sea, and so be using a lot of jargon specific to naval operations. Considering that naval terminology can be a little confusing, I'd like to do an extended preamble for this episode in which I explain some of this. First we should cover ship classes. The largest and most powerful ships afloat during the Second World War were the mighty battleships. The term battleship dates back to at least the 18th century, but generally refers to capital ships consisting of large caliber guns mounted on rotating turrets without sails. In 1906, battleship design was revolutionized with the commissioning of the HMS Dreadnought by the Royal Navy. The Dreadnought had 10 12-inch guns, a powerful engine, and impressive armor making it the greatest ship afloat. 12-inch guns referring to the width of the barrel. With that, an arms race would begin that would continue to beef up the battleship until the aircraft carrier came to replace it as the main capital ship at the end of World War II. After the First World War, a wrinkle would be thrown in battleship design, though. With heavy restrictions on tonnage, a measure of tons of water displaced by a vessel, Germany had to find a way to pack more weaponry into a smaller hull. This resulted in the pocket battleship. Though technically heavy cruisers in order to meet Versailles restrictions, the vessels were clearly intended to operate in the role of a battleship. They carried six 11-inch guns, utilized modern diesel engines, and were welded together in order to save weight that bolts would have added. The next tier down, if you will, is the cruiser. Initially cruisers were meant to be large vessels meant for long voyages that operated mostly independent of the main fleet. They were usually fast and carried moderately powerful guns of up to 8 inches. They oftentimes patrolled commerce lanes or were dispatched to hotspots around the world. Leading up to the First World War though, a debate emerged as to whether it would be practical to add heavier guns to cruisers so that they could fight toe-to-toe with battleships if the need arose. Thus, the battlecruiser was born. Unfortunately, the idea looked better on paper than at sea. Battlecruisers proved to be too poorly armored to actually perform very well in large fleet engagements and were easily damaged by enemy fire. Battlecruisers continue to be produced after 1918, though, as a way for nations to add more large guns to their fleets without breaking the provisions of the various treaties they were party to. The next level down from cruiser is the destroyer. Destroyers were initially created to counter the threat of torpedo boats, which were small, nimble, and fast. Too fast for large vessels to effectively combat them, so a smaller, faster vessel was developed to counter that threat, a torpedo boat destroyer, which was shortened to just destroyer by the First World War. During the Great War, destroyers would also assume their convoy escort role, especially as German U-boat attacks began to pester Allied shipping. Typically, destroyers of the First and Second World Wars were not designed for independent operations and always sailed either with a convoy or a flotilla of other vessels. Destroyers were also employed in a number of other roles, though. During the interwar years, many navies beefed up their destroyers so that they could contend with capital ships if the opportunity presented itself. They also began arming them with anti-aircraft guns so they could screen the fleet for aircraft. So I hope that quick and dirty rundown of the basic ship classes helps give everyone a better idea of what it is I will be discussing in this episode. So with that, we can begin Episode 8, The War at Sea. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Though the battles along the Western Front and over the skies of London are the most renowned of the early war, fighting was raging elsewhere, too. The first major naval engagement after the sinking of the Graf Spee took place off the coast of Norway during the German invasion. In the far north, inside the Arctic Circle, the cruiser Renown took on the Nisenau and Scharnhorst in a brief but furious battle. The Renown actually managed to wound the Nisenau, but the German ships were able to stand their ground to protect the transport vessels landing men on the mainland. Several more engagements took place along the Norwegian coast, in which the German cruiser Königsberg was sunk and the Lutzov was critically damaged. On April 10, 1940, Captain Warburton Lee sailed his flotilla, led by the battleship Warspite, and followed by nine destroyers, into Narvik harbor. There, he wreaked havoc on the German vessels at their moorings. All told, eight destroyers and one U-boat were lost, along with a smattering of other vessels. Overall, the battle for Norway had cost the Kriegsmarine half of its destroyer force and, with losses over the previous months, most of her battleships. The Battle of Norway had also been something of an embarrassment for the Royal Navy, though. How had a smaller force managed to successfully complete a naval invasion in the Royal Navy's home waters? Partly, this was a simple matter of terrain and weather. The Norwegian coast is an absolute labyrinth of fjords, which are often hidden in fog and cloud. But it was also a matter of overconfidence. The Admiralty could not believe the Germans would attempt such an audacious maneuver. British aircraft first spotted German vessels putting to sea on April 7th and immediately alerted the home fleet. As the fleet prepared to intercept from Scapa Flow, bombers were sent aloft in an attempt to remove the threat from the air. Billy Mitchell had demonstrated that capital ships could theoretically be sunk by high-altitude bombers in 1921, but the target had been stationary. No one had ever really attempted what the British were now doing. Bombing vessels underway, and it proved futile. Not a single bomb hit its mark, and the German fleet continued on. To make matters worse, the Admiralty misjudged the Kriegsmarine's intentions. Churchill and the admirals believed the German fleet was attempting a out of the North Sea in order to raid shipping. In reality, they were moving to land in Norway. This mistake combined with the home fleet's sluggish departure from Scapa Flow cost the fleet precious time to interdict. After making their correction and meeting the German fleet they were able to inflict significant damage, but it was already too late. The Wehrmacht was ashore and Norway was on its way to becoming yet another German occupied territory. The real threat at sea came not from the German surface fleet though, but from the U-boats. Germany had made effective use of submarines in the First World War, but they had left a sour taste in everyone's mouth as controversial and ungentlemanly weapons. Karl Dernitz, the godfather of the German submarine fleet, had continued to develop submarine tactics during the interwar years, though, and during that time had envisioned the wolf pack. Despite his foresight, by 1939 the submarine force had very little to show. There were only 22 seagoing boats. Dernitz would have to prove the utility of his sea wolves before more would be launched. On September 3rd, 1939, he would begin doing just that and begin the Battle of the Atlantic. At 8 p.m. that night, the SS Athenia, a passenger liner, was struck by a torpedo from U-30 and sank the next morning. She was the first victim of the U-boats, but hardly the last. Two days later, on September 5th, the Bosnia was sunk in the North Atlantic. It was the first merchant vessel carrying actual cargo to sink. For the next four years, until 1943... The Battle of the Atlantic would rage on. But in 1939, the peril would only increase as Durnitz ruthlessly demonstrated the effectiveness of his sea wolves. The initial hunting ground designated by Durnitz only extended about 500 miles west of Ireland. Here, his wolves would prowl and ply their deadly trade. Allied shipping would soon adopt countermeasures though. Within a week, convoying became standard, at which point the U-boats adopted wolf pack tactics. When one vessel spotted a convoy, it would alert its pack members, and they would descend on their prey. As the subs gathered and trailed, waiting for their brethren, they continued to report bearing and speed. When all were present, they unleashed their torpedoes in the dead of night before disappearing beneath the waves to evade the destroyer escorts. If the destroyers could not find them, they would launch yet another volley and harass the convoy until driven off or they ran out of fish, as they called their torpedoes. Unfortunately for the merchant crews, there simply weren't enough destroyers to go around in the early war. Many of the ships designed specifically for escort duty were nearing the end of their lives, having been launched during the First World War. The newer destroyers were good ships, but were designed for fleet duty, and thus lacked the range to slowly lumber along with merchant ships. There were a few modern convoy escorts coming into service, but they were few and in high demand. During 1917 and 1918, a typical convoy consisted of roughly 20 merchant vessels and seven destroyer escorts. In early 1940, a convoy could consist of 20 to 30 merchantmen and only one aged destroyer. This lack of escorts only multiplied the power of the wolf pack. Though the U boat crews were enjoying large successes while underway, they lived in absolutely abominable conditions. They were cramped inside a stinking, damp, suffocating metal can for weeks on end as they approached their targets. And death aboard a submarine is probably one of the worst imaginable. First, if the sub was critically damaged, the chances of survival are essentially zero. And second, because death would most likely arrive in the form of drowning in pitch black, oily water. It's hard to imagine a more terrifying end. At least in the early days, losses were tolerable. Though by war's end, more than half of the sailors conscripted for submarine service would die at sea. As the war progressed and tonnage lost at sea grew, the Admiralty devised more anti-submarine measures. The first, and most obvious, was to find ways of illuminating the night when under attack. Searchlights and star shells became standard equipment for all convoys. Soon, depth charges were introduced, as well as sonar, allowing convoys to detect and destroy the U-boats while submerged. Lastly, a method of detecting German radio communications allowed the Allies to figure out where submarines were through their transmissions. This proved extremely valuable in rerouting convoys to avoid interception. The U-boats weren't the only threat, though. Of course, there were the German pocket battleships patrolling the waves, but also the mighty Condor patrol craft that the Luftwaffe and Kriegsmarine were able to put to deadly use. Especially after the fall of France, they were able to fly far out into the Atlantic to spot convoys and eventually start bombing them. During the Battle of Britain, British aircraft were totally preoccupied with protecting the home island, There was absolutely no air cover except for the odd convoy covered by the HMS Ark Royal. All of the Allied countermeasures would take time to develop and implement, though. During the first few months of the war, the situation was dire indeed. In the summer of 1940, British shipping was losing 400,000 tons a week to the Wolf Packs. In the early months of 1941, a dozen ships were sunk every single week. Losses were far outpacing replacements, and the British government was running out of cash with which to order new ships. Something had to be done, and thankfully Franklin Roosevelt was there to offer assistance and keep the British from strangulation. After the election of 1940, Churchill sent Roosevelt a letter detailing the plight of his country. He documented the atrocious losses to the British Merchant Marine and the collapse of their financial reserves. FDR was so moved by the letter that he immediately began making preparations to begin helping his beleaguered friends across the sea. Though still technically neutral, the United States had certainly taken sides. Axis consulates were closed and assets frozen. The American Hemispheric Security Zone was extended a thousand miles into the Atlantic. West of that line, the US Navy would protect merchant vessels and report U-boat sightings. Part of extending the Security Zone included sending Marines to Iceland to establish American air bases there from which anti-submarine patrols could fly. It was also during this first phase of the Battle of the Atlantic that German and American forces first fired on one another. Americans had been on board the very first vessel sunk and would continue to die in further convoy raids. By September of 1941, Roosevelt explicitly instructed the U.S. Navy to fire on any vessel flying the German Navy ensign. The war had effectively already begun for the Americans in the Atlantic. One crucial element of the Battle for the Atlantic and the wider war that we have yet to discuss is Enigma, the German cipher machine. To the average person, the Enigma machine looks like a bulky typewriter with 26 keys for each letter and no numbers or punctuation marks. Any time a letter was punched, a different letter would light up and an assistant would record the illuminated letter. After recording the transcribed message, it would be transmitted to its intended recipient who possessed another Enigma on the other end. There, they would enter the enciphered message with the machine on the same settings and the deciphered message would be spelled out what made Enigma so effective was that there were millions of possible settings that could be achieved by changing the three rotors in the machine that created the encryption. Cracking Enigma was the holy grail of the codebreakers at Bletchley Park, and they set to work as quickly as possible. Though British signals detection could listen in on German transmissions, they had no way to understand them. They would begin trying at once. Alan Turing, a brilliant if eccentric mathematician, was at the heart of this effort. By spring of 1940, Aided by the efforts of Polish codebreakers who had begun trying to decrypt Enigma prior to the war, he had helped create a device known as the bomb, which could partially decrypt German messages. Complicating matters, though, the Kriegsmarine signals operators were well-disciplined and made every effort not only to follow proper procedures, but also to minimize transmissions in order to deny the enemy as much data as possible. In fact, they operated on the presumption that the enemy was listening, The German military had learned its lesson from World War I, in which the British had quickly and effectively cracked their codes. Since then, the Germans not only strove for a secure cipher system, but also to crack British codes. Before the outbreak of the war, the German decryption service, B. Dienst, already had the ability to decipher the naval code in real time, and would continue to until almost 1941. As the battle for the Atlantic was ramping up, so too was the battle for control of the Mediterranean. As 1940 was drawing to a close, the Axis powers had a distinct numerical advantage in the Mediterranean Sea. With the French eliminated, and the British limited to just their bases in Malta and Alexandria, the Allies were perilously close to having the Suez Canal blocked and the entire Middle East cut off. The Mediterranean squadron of four battleships, four battlecruisers, two carriers, ten cruisers, and four destroyer flotillas was formidable, but too thin a line. In order to rectify this, The Royal Navy needed to deal a devastating blow to the Italian Navy. When Italy invaded Greece in late October, the pressure was on the Royal Navy to get the job done. Initially, they attempted to lure out the Italian fleet based in Toronto by sailing two convoys just past the southern tip of Italy. But the Italians didn't bite. Their fleet of five battleships, 14 cruisers, and 27 destroyers remained at their moorings. To make matters worse, the carrier HMS Eagle was damaged by Italian bombers and had to return to port for repairs. Fortunately, the HMS Illustrious was able to take her complement of swordfish torpedo bombers aboard. Seeing that the enemy would not come out to fight the Royal Navy, they decided to take the fight to them and planned a bold and audacious plan called Operation Judgment. In a novel approach to naval combat, they would launch a nighttime raid of torpedo bombers. Before the plan could be set in motion though, a reconnaissance of the Port of Toronto had to be conducted. So on the night of November 10th, a single Martin, Maryland aircraft was dispatched from Malta to report on enemy positions and test air defenses. Adrian Warburton, the pilot, in an act of incredible daring, flew in at just above wave height, dodging flak and barrage balloons, making note of enemy ship locations as he went. On his return flight, he reported his findings to the commander of the Illustrious. With positive results, not just in terms of ship positions, but also aircraft survivability, Admiral Leister decided to launch the raid the very next night. On the evening of November eleventh, nineteen 1940, two waves of swordfish launched from the illustrious. The first wave, led by Lieutenant Commander Kenneth Williamson, consisted of 12 aircraft, six of which carried torpedoes. The second wave took off 40 minutes later and consisted of nine aircraft, five of which were armed with torpedoes, and was led by Lieutenant Commander John Hale. The first wave arrived at approximately 2,300, to an obviously unprepared enemy. Despite the fact that they had been reconnoitered the night before, the Italians seemed to have taken no extra precautions. The barrage balloons that had been damaged the day before were not prepared, the Italians were not flying extra air patrols, and their torpedo nets were not deep enough. Upon arriving at the base at Toronto, the British immediately illuminated the area, revealing the battleship Latoro, which was promptly targeted and sunk with three torpedoes. Next. Two aging battleships were hit and critically damaged. As the flight moved toward the inner harbor, they destroyed another cruiser and destroyer. During the course of the battle, though, Italian anti-aircraft managed to bring down two of the swordfish, including Commander Williamson's aircraft. It was a small price to pay to cripple the Italian fleet, though. Without capital ship superiority, the Italians would never engage the Royal Navy in a head-to-head fight in the Mediterranean. Of course, fighting would continue to rage through the Mediterranean until Allied forces had driven halfway up the Italian peninsula. Once the battle for North Africa began, battles would be fought to halt German-Italian convoys ferrying troops and supplies back and forth. Combined sea-air operations would continue, and the British would continue flying sorties for Malta. And in the Atlantic, the war would only grow more complex and violent. It would still be years before the German happy times began in the Atlantic, when they sank so much tonnage they were beside themselves. They would eventually give way, though, as American shipyards churned out more destroyer escorts and as Allied countermeasures grew ever more effective. And this actually segues well into discussing one of the fulcrums around which the Germans lost the Second World War. A huge problem faced by German and military industrial planers was whether to commit more resources to the Air Force or to the Navy. The Army had always been the primary force and received the bulk of resources, and for good reason. But the war effort had to be supported by naval and air operations. But which should the Germans have relied on? U-boats were obviously critically useful. Had they committed more to commerce raiding, could they have brought Britain to its knees? Perhaps, but that may have been at the expense of the Luftwaffe. The German army relied on air support from the earliest days of the war to achieve its tactical superiority. Additionally, planes of all types were in constant need of replacement. It's possible that had Hitler decided to support the U-boat effort before the war even began, that he could have brought Britain to its knees almost immediately. In reality, it took time for Hitler and his entourage to realize how effective the U-boats could be, thus delaying their effective employment in large numbers, during which time the Allies were able to begin developing countermeasures. This is just my opinion, but it seems distinctly possible that had the Germans committed early enough, they could have had a shot at knocking Britain out of the war by use of submarine commerce raiding. Historically, they were never able to achieve that critical mass of U-boats, and who's to say where that point was? But they certainly got close. Regardless, sorry for the long delay in between episodes and for the slightly short one this time around. I actually found this episode somewhat more time-consuming to write and research. Anyway, I hope you will join me next time as we discuss the Italian invasion of Greece and the beginning of the war in North Africa.